Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm thrilled to be in the studio this afternoon with a a local lady. Um, Her name is Glenna Crooks, and Glenna Crooks um, is the founder of a new tech company called Sage Life. Um, She also has numerous other um, titles that we will talk about later in the show, but as we always do, I'm going to start out um, talking about Glenna's life growing up, which uh, happens to be in Indiana, and Glenna was the oldest of three children. So talk to me for a few minutes about your life growing up and, and what that was like. Oh, glad to do so. I'm glad to be here, Sue. Thank you so much for the invitation today. Yes. I really am a native Hoosier. Those people who've been there know that we live with open doors and open hearts. And the family I grew up in, the neighborhood I grew up in, was really pretty extraordinary. I have to tell you one thing. On our block, there were 50 kids. We were boomers, after all. Yes. That's a big block. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it was a big block, but there certainly were a lot of kids. But guess what? There were only two girls. Oh, my goodness. And so I hung out with the boys until it wasn't cool for the boys to hang out with girls anymore, which I think was about the time we were 10. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, I I ran fast, so I was a a good pick for the running games um, uh, that we had. And I can only – I recall so many wonderful things. One of them, when I was young – telling my mom as I went to sleep at night that I was so tired from playing that I was afraid I would forget to breathe. You know, (laughs) that's how tired I felt, which is when probably I got my first science lesson because she told me that, in fact, we don't really have to try to breathe. Our bodies will do that. Right. And so she reassured me that I could go to sleep and I would continue to breathe, that it would be okay. Right. Um, my extended family was all nearby, mm-hmm. um, uh, grandparents and aunts and uncles and lots of cousins. And we had uh, wonderful uh, holidays with everyone gathering, mostly at Grandma's house. Mm-hmm. It was the only time we got sodas, by the way. I don't oh. think I tasted a soda until I was 10. Uh, we lived... Um, a pretty frugal life, but it was a very healthy one yeah. uh, growing up. And I have, uh, now looking back, have a lot to thank my family for in that regard. Yeah, um, which is a good thing that you didn't have soda till 10. <laughs> right. It's not that you want to give little kids soda. <laughs> right. Um, you know, one of the things I didn't see in your bio in, in my research, uh, but I'm wondering with all those boys in the neighborhood and running around, did you play sports? Was that ever a part of your, your growing up? Only in the neighborhood. Okay. And only at Girl Scouts. Oh, and Girl Scouts. Okay. I grew up in in the era before Title IX, so sports was really not widely available to girls mm-hmm. in elementary school, and those that were in high school were very limited as well. Yeah, yeah. So that that was the the opportunity. It was um, as I grew older, it was mostly through scouting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk for a few minutes about your mom, who had a. F- huge influence on you growing up. Um, I I think both she and you did things kind of ahead of your time and and maybe things that weren't the norm. So um, tell the listeners a little bit about your your mom and her um, curiosity and need for education (laughs) at a time when maybe she, you know, um, was to be home raising Mm -hmm. children. 
my parents had a kind of remarkable um, insight, and I think a very strategic one when I was about eight, that their kids were never going to, quote, amount to something unless they could go to college. And they, given their income at the time, my mom being a stay-at-home mom and my dad being a blue-collar worker, were never going to be able to afford that. So they sorted through the options, and there were three. My mom had been in nurse, nurse's training before she and my dad were married, so one option was go to back to nursing school and then become a nurse. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would have been a small amount of education and not as favorable a job in their view. The other option was for my mom to go to school, start to college, and become a teacher. None of her nursing credits would have transferred over at that point, so she would have been starting out as a brand-new freshman. And the third option is that she would get a blue-collar job herself, mm-hmm. uh, probably clerking in a grocery store. They made a really important decision, I think, for me in the sense that they became a model for how to invest in yourself. Right. She went to college. She started to college. In she, the 1950s, oh, is uh, that right? That would have been 1960. Oh, 1960. Okay. That was a time before moms did that sort of thing. Right. So she encountered a lot of um, uh, hostility from family for doing that. A lot of people, I think, genuinely concerned about me and my brothers. And would we turn out to be juvenile delinquents because mom was not at home when right. we came home from school? But um, she, she persisted and she really endured. We only had one car at the time, and she was commuting to a college campus that was an hour away by bus. So she, and she had one transfer in, in there. So for her to do that commute, uh, do her studies, and then to graduate in just four years and one summer semester with her bachelor's degree with honors was, I think, pretty extraordinary. Yeah. 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 So who was home when you got home from school? Sometimes it was my dad, Mm -hmm. and sometimes it was just us. Just you. You know, occasionally my grandmother might be there, but, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we were given instructions about how to behave. Mm -hmm. Uh, We knew how to be safe in in our homes, and I think we were tight-knit enough that we got through it just fine. My brothers and I learned a lot. My brothers, in fact, were very good cooks. Uh, And um, uh, again, ahead of of her time, uh, my mom really firmly believed that I should learn to do things that the boys generally did, like cut the grass and, you know, change light bulbs and do simple things like that of maintenance around the home. And she believed that my brothers should learn to do the things that women traditionally did. And so they cooked, they did laundry, they cleaned house. So we learned a, a great skill set for our transition into the adult world. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, One of the parts of your story that I find fascinating is that you went to college between your junior and senior year um, at Indiana University Mm -hmm. and lived with your mom while she was (laughs) studying. So you were both classmates basically together. Uh And talk about how that came to be. This is another great story. Uh, in Indiana, once you graduate with your master's degree, or your, your ba- I'm sorry, your bachelor's degree, and you start to teach, you have to start to work on a master's degree within five years and then finish it within five years of starting. Well, our family was kind of on a roll, and my parents decided that rather than my mom kicking back for a year and just resting, that she would keep pushing through school. So she taught during the day and she went at night. 
but she was going to Indiana University, uh, and that required two summers on campus in Bloomington, Indiana, which was about a four-hour drive away from our home. Oh, okay. So, so the first step was we knew she had to go down on campus. She got a, th- a three-bedroom apartment mm-hmm. with a friend of hers, and they were going to go down that summer together. Right around that same time, I learned about a program for high school students that allowed us to be admitted to the university when we were juniors, go to college that summer, earn college credit Mm. with the condition that we had to go back and finish our senior year in high school. Okay. So I talked my way into a lot of things. And <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> one of the things I talked my way into was going down on campus with my mom. Okay. So I built the case it would be a great thing for me to do. Yeah. And I went down there with my mom. That's so great. Yeah. Well, what were you studying that summer? I took anatomy and psychology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So psychology was an interest of yours from the very beginning. Did you, did you always have an interest in people and kind of what made them tick? Not really. It's kind of a default for me. I wanted to be an astrophysicist. Oh, that's true. Yes. <laughs> but I was um, I was more than discouraged about from that. I was told flatly that girls can't do that sort of thing. Yeah. So I, f- I floundered for a lot of years, and I'm not quite sure what led me into psychology, but I, I did enjoy it yeah. and um, uh, wound up then with a bachelor's degree in psychology and then a master's in educational psychology and became a school psychologist. I want to know if you always had this energy level that you do today, because I read that you said one of your um, mistakes, and it's really a challenge for you even today, is that you kind of take on too much. Um, You probably put more on your plate than you should. Um, Out of boredom, I think I read that you you just kind of um, need to be busy. I do get bored easily. But it's not just boredom. Uh, I see so many problems that need to be solved. And I see so many opportunities to do terrific things, fun things, helpful things, uh, creative things, Mm -hmm. that I just do it. Yeah. Yeah. You take initiative. Mm -hmm. Well, and I'm excited. It it, it energizes me um, to do it. And so... I wish my days were longer. I wish my weeks were longer. And uh, I'm highly likely to live a very long time. I've got those kind of genes. And I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We were talking before the show, actually, about your experience in both a public and Catholic school. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we talked about was that often in the Catholic schools, there's a feeling of of, uh, feeling stifled, um, which really is just because of the uh, the rules and the regulations, and it's a little bit more structured than the public schools. And it was interesting to me that you said, um, you know, the poverty saved you from going to the Catholic school merely because your mom and dad couldn't afford it, and, and you ended up in a, in a public high school. So Catholic grade school, mm-hmm. public high school. Mm-hmm. What, were, what were the differences that you saw uh, between the two, and how did that kind of shape who you are? The first thing that occurs to me is class size. Um, There were about 600 kids in my high school graduating class, but no one of our classrooms had maybe more than 15 or 20 students in them. Mm -hmm. But in the Catholic school right from the beginning, even in first grade, there were 60 kids in one classroom. 
that's big for for that age it's especially for yes and so in addition to whatever the cultural um, standards were of the time and the expectations for what children would be like or especially what girls would be like um, in addition to that I, I have to say I have I feel I feel a lot for those nuns having to manage 60 kids all yes, day yes. That, that must have been incredibly demanding which is why they use the rollers <laughs> So public school gave me an opportunity to experience more freedom um, and also to learn a kind of um, self-management and accountability Mm -hmm. that we didn't have in Catholic school. I will never forget the first time that uh, my homeroom um, uh, uh, let out and we had to go to our next class. And I was so amazed that we didn't actually have to line up two by two and walk down the hall and be supervised while we were doing it. They just expected us to get to the next classroom. I mean, that was eye-opening for me. Yeah, yeah. That's a yeah. It's a sense of freedom. It's it's kind of you know being responsible for your own actions mm-hmm. and um, you mentioned your interest in in at one time in being an astronaut, which mm-hmm. I find fascinating. That's a very you have to have a lot of courage to you know aspire to something like that. What was it about? Uh, was it John Glenn's mission um, into space that that you remember? And there was something about that event that excited you? Really, I was in third grade, um, and they brought a television into our classroom so that we could watch it. And in again, in that era, the only jobs for a woman were being a nurse or being uh, a teacher. Now, that's assuming you were going to have a job at all. And perhaps it was because there were 60 kids in my classroom, I kept looking at that teacher and saying, that doesn't look like fun to me. And when, <laughs> when John Glenn made that famous three-minute ride just up and down into, you know, into space and then you know, returning to Earth so quickly, I looked at that and I thought, now that looks like fun. Yeah. And so that really did set me off in, in the study of astronomy and um, physics mm-hmm. and, um, and theoretical mathematics, right from, by the time I was in fourth grade, I was pursuing that seriously. Wow. Uh-huh. Yeah, so you had this sense of adventure, I would say. I don't know. It just looked like fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so your years in college, when did you graduate college? What year was that? I finished in... Um, I accelerated my degree program. It's hard for me to remember. I finished in 1973 with both a bachelor's and a master's. In psychology, am I right? Bachelor's in psychology and a master's in educational psychology. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. And then what was your first job out of school? I was a school psychologist. Okay. And I was part of a whole new first wave of school psychologists who were coming into the field Um, as specialists in how children learned. I wasn't a clinical psychologist in the sense that I dealt with behavior problems or uh, situations like that. Um, My role was to find out how it was the children learned so that their teachers and their parents could better understand that to help them. So when I started the job, this was before the days when there was legislation that said every child could be educated. Mm -hmm. In fact, what was happening there in Indiana is we were watching case law emerged in Pennsylvania. And there was case law here that established the right of every child to have an education. That hadn't happened yet. So in the early years in my work, I did horror story stuff. I went into homes and found children who, in those days, we called, everybody thought was, quote, retarded, um, who were really deaf. Uh, one child was 17 years old, and in 17 years, no one had detected that he was deaf. Wow. 
um, children who had spina bifida. And because they didn't have bowel or bladder control, they were not allowed in a school. Now, by the way, they were getting around town on their bikes. They were riding horses, but they weren't being educated. Mm -hmm. So we, those of us in that first wave, did a lot of creating social change to make education more accessible for children. Is that where your interest in um, health came into play for you? Um, you know, I didn't mention for the listeners, um, Glenna worked under uh, Ronald Reagan's administration as an advisory for health care. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. I'm wondering if it spurred from those years of working with children with health issues. In part, I kind of backed into that. Um, after three years as a school psychologist doing that kind of work, I burned out. And I didn't know what else to do except go back to school. So that's when I went back to work on a doctorate. Mm -hmm. My concern at the time was that by the time I saw children and they were five or six years old, it seemed to me that it was too late, that interventions needed to take place a lot earlier. And I thought, what's the first system to affect the life of a child? Well, it's the healthcare system Mm -hmm. because of the prenatal care their mothers get, the birth care that they get after that, and then all of the early um, uh, good pediatric preventive care that they get. So that led me into studying healthcare. Once I got into healthcare, I never went back. You never went back. Yeah. Um, I I wanted to talk for a few minutes about a a defining moment in your life. Um, At at some point in your 20s, um, you decided to take up karate. Why not? You didn't have enough on your plate. Um, and you mentioned that, you know, you suffered an accident uh, in the training, and and that's something that, sh- you know, changed your life. What happened? You know, I'm not sure why I went to start karate in the beginning, except that there was a school that was very accessible, and you've already established that I'm courageous or maybe stupid or silly sometimes. Um, and at first, for me, karate was like a dance. So it just made sense to me. After a while, my teacher asked me to train for the Olympics, uh, the 1980 Olympics specifically. That was going to be the first year that karate was ever offered as an Olympic sport, and I agreed to train. And How old were you at that time? Um, I was 22. Okay. Yeah. And so at, at that point, uh, uh, I began serious training, and... And one one afternoon, I was about to do another set with um, someone, and this kind of aura came over me. I just got this, like, premonition that said, you're going to get hurt really bad today in karate, and it's going to be your last day. And I thought to myself, oh, please, you know, you are not psychic. I mean, if you're tired, you can sit this one out, but get over yourself. <laughs> you're not psychic. And just get up there and do this exercise. And the next time he came around, he came around with a wild backspin kick, which had I not probably had that premonition and then blocked and turned and gotten out of the way, he would have hit me square in the face. And I probably would have bled to death before I hit the floor. So as it was, I got a glancing blow across the left side of my face. So everything on the left side is been, has been reconstructed. Most people would never know. Never know. Never know. Never know. And all of this surgical correction was done through the inside of my mouth, so there were no scars left on the outside. Now, I never went back to karate after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the surgeon who did the work, <laughs> when it was my last visit with him, he pulled his 
glasses down over his nose and he looked over at them and he said, you know, you ain't half bad looking. And he said, <laughs> and, and if this ever happens again, we're not going to be able to fix it. Oh. And I said, okay, doc, enough said. And so I got out of competition at that time. Now, I have used karate once since then. I was mugged and I did fight the guy off. You did? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Surprised both of us, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I guess once you once you learn that, you know, you, it's kind of like riding a bike. You don't forget, and you it's, have those tools to defend yourself. It's reflex. I mean, I didn't think about it. It just happened. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. Um, we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk more with Glenna Crooks, a Ph.D. and founder of a new tech company called Sage Life. We'll be right back. Are you the parent of a daughter in middle school? If so, I must tell you about an upcoming event at Mount St. Joseph Academy. As the parent of an alum, I know firsthand the value of their academic excellence, athletic and arts programs. This private, all-girls Catholic high school in Montgomery County provides the foundation our daughters need to go on to leadership roles at top universities and future careers. I know my daughter did. To register for the open house, go to msjacad.org backslash open house. And be sure to ask about their financial assistance and scholarship programs when you visit msjacad.org backslash open house. Hello. Hi, Kelly. It's Sue. Are you and Joe going to the kids game after school today? No, we are stuck in traffic the hospital for Joe's IVIG infusion. As usual, we will be at the hospital all day and won't be home in time. This is really becoming a problem with our work and family commitments. Hey, my friend's son receives his infusions at home with Walgreens. You know they are not just a retail pharmacy. Walgreens has a national home infusion program. He used to miss school, but now the Walgreens nurses see him at home after school. Wow, infusions in the comfort of our own home? Yes. Walgreens expert infusion nurses and pharmacists are available 24-7 to provide safe, one-on-one clinical support around your schedule. Talk to your doctor and call Walgreens Infusion Services at 877-974-4844 or go to womentowatch.net for complete details. We will, if we ever get out of this traffic, hardy har har. We can't wait to have these infusions at home with Walgreens. Thanks. Be well. Have you ever wondered about the magic of Paris? Traveled there before? You haven't experienced Paris until you've traveled with us. I'm Chloe Johnson, the owner of CJ Tours. I became hooked on the mystique of all things Parisian after just one visit to the city of light. CJ Tours, a travel, fashion, and product company, provides an experience unlike any other when it comes to exploring the hidden gems of Paris. We connect you with boutiques off the beaten path. We provide the opportunity to go behind the scenes with some of the most celebrated designers Paris has to offer. You can even purchase one-of-a-kind French pieces as mementos of your trip or ask us to source that special piece just for you. CJ Tours and our unique products are designed to provide that Parisian je ne sais quoi and allow you to experience Paris like never before. To learn more, contact me at Chloe Johnston at cjshoppingtours.com or simply visit chloejohnston.com for more information. Are you looking for assistance with your IT demands? Would you like to know that the people you hire have your best interest at heart? 
InSource is one of the region's most distinguished and fastest growing technology firms in the Philadelphia area. Their only concern is to deliver your business long-term success to avoid reacting to daily crisis. Recognized as a top employer of IT consultants, they thrive on helping their clients exceed expectations. InSource delivers reliable and effective solutions to the technology needs of both small and large businesses as well as nonprofits and does so with the goals of your business in mind. With over a decade of recognized success, InSource provides its clients with both IT staffing needs as well as putting highly qualified project teams together. InSource is also a partner of ServiceNow, the fastest growing software company in the country. Contact InSource today at 610-592-0800 or visit their website at insourcenow.com to find the quality help you need. When you are shopping, do you chuckle at the one-size-fits-all tags? Well, wealth management should not take a one-size-fits-all approach either. Companies offer different products and services for women, and they should. All women are different. Your plan should be as unique and personal as you are. So why are you still following your one-size-fits-all financial advisor? Financial advisor Liz Barker of RBC Wealth Management understands this. Her area of expertise is women in transition and being retirement ready. Call Liz Barker, financial advisor at RBC Wealth Management at 484-530-2806. Again, that number is 484-530-2806. Or visit her online at www.lizbarker.com to schedule your complimentary custom wealth management plan today. RBC Wealth Management, a division of RBC Capital Markets, LLC, member NYSE, FINRA, SIPC. Welcome back, everyone, to this week's Women to Watch. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm joined in the studio today uh, with Glenna Crooks. Glenna is a Ph.D., and she is the founder of a new, a brand-new tech company called Sage Life, um, which will be launching very, very soon. Um, Glenna also is a career, uh, has had a long career in healthcare. And um, just before the break, we were talking about her years um, after college. Glenna was appointed a, a health policy advisor under the administration for President Reagan. And of course, I'm sure those were exciting years and you learned a lot from um, working in D.C. in the administration. Talk about some of the highlights of those years for you. Sometimes I say that was the best postdoc anybody ever did. It was a different era in healthcare at the time because healthcare was really not on the national agenda. The economy was on the national agenda. And what that did was allow those of us who were experts in health policy and in healthcare to work in our own niche and to really focus on health. We were not so politically driven as I believe it really is today. Right, right. Uh, there were very few people in Congress who understood healthcare, so they relied on us as experts. And in addition to that, even though we might have fought in public, Democrats and Republicans, behind the scenes we had a close working relationship, which I understand does not exist today. Mm -hmm. So it brought me in touch with really amazing people, people who were so dedicated, a career staff, which were by far and large, just way beyond the talent of anything you will ever hear about. Extraordinary people who knew their subject area and who honestly represented all sides of the issue mm -hmm. and presented that to us so that we could make the best decision. And 
and some really trying issues. The first meeting that I went to in government was the first time that Bill Fage, who was head of the Centers for Disease Control, came up from Atlanta and said, we don't understand why, but seven otherwise healthy young men have died in San Francisco. So that was the start of HIV. We didn't even have a word for it at the time. And then I was in that same meeting 18 months later when he arrived and didn't say a word this time, but put on the wall a tracing of contacts and how this disease was spreading from one person to another. So the fear, the terror that descended on that room was palpable Mm. as we began to realize that we had a transmissible agent in the blood supply and that therefore it would affect all blood transfusion patients and um, you know, organ transplant patients and, it, and um, it could be transmitted through accidents in hospitals and so on. It was, uh, that was a pretty terrifying time. Um, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling as I'm sitting in a room and getting that news, how do you even begin to create um, new policy for something like that? Where, what's the first step you take when you receive that news? You get as much information as you can, and you hope you are surrounded by really wise and thoughtful people. And I think at that time we we had some. Yeah. Uh, you hope for cooperation at every level. And uh, we were lucky because the Centers for Disease Control has established such cooperative relationships among the various levels of government. And so that trust allowed us to do uh, work um, uh, more expeditiously than we might have otherwise. I will contrast that with the first Tylenol tampering. I was sitting in a meeting when we got that news. There were five scenarios of how that poisoning happened, and four of them jeopardized my family. Wow. And I remember stepping outside that room and calling my dad um, because I knew that I had a niece uh, who was a young child and ill, and they might be giving her infant ty- children's Tylenol. And I knew there was a possibility that that could have been contaminated. The, the uh, Tylenol was sold at Jewel Food Stores, which is where my family shopped in that Chicagoland area. Yeah. And um, uh, But in contrast, it was harder for us to deal with law enforcement officials. So uh, although we were able to to, you know, mount the challenge, it was a lot more challenging because from the health sector to the law enforcement sector, we didn't have those kind of longstanding trusted relationships. Um, What was the hardest part of that job for you? I think the demand to learn because we would literally end every day with a stack of material we had to know by the next day. And then the uh, probably I wouldn't have known the word for it at the time, but the adrenaline and the cortisol that we pumped the next day when we when we woke up, I when I first woke up every day, I read I read three newspapers. Uh, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. And I would blow through those really quickly just to be sure that none of my issues or none of the people that I was responsible for with regard to health care, that would be the president, the vice president, the secretary of health and human services, who at the time was Pennsylvanian uh, Dick Schweiker, or um, the Surgeon General, uh, again at the time, Sierra Coop, a Philadelphian, right. uh, that they were not mentioned in any of that, in any of the papers, because if they were, it might well mean that they were going on Nightline tonight, clearly not the president, but one of his representatives, and therefore our whole day would be upended to get them prepared. Uh, My 
present to myself when I left government was for one year. I did not read the paper first thing in the morning. Wow. <laughs> that's a lot to read. I mean, really, that's, and not only that, to absorb, um, you know, you're not a medical doctor. You're a psychologist, and you have to absorb and understand and be able to um, give out, you know, medical information and then determine new policy and then do a little PR prep. You know, that's a lot. And those were the days before computers. Right. So the um, technical challenges of creating those documents was very great. But then I had a really great staff. Yeah. And the support that we had to do the work we needed to do was really very good. Yeah. Um, I want to mention that, that your colleagues felt that you were not only successful, but that you should run for Congress. I mean, they felt that not only you were doing a good job, but there was more that you could do. And, I'm, you know, I find it it's, it's a very important piece of your story that you came to a decision um, that you did not want to work in government and in politics. What was it that made you come to that aha moment that it was not for you? Yeah, um, it was politics that I didn't like. One of the things I was assigned to do in the administration was to go to a really amazing meeting in Greece and represent the United States. There were policy officials from 44 nations, from all the medical sciences, and from all the major world religions. And the dialogue was about how the ethical and religious values of a culture were the underpinnings of how health policy decisions were made. My job was to talk about how we made policy decisions in the United States. In doing the work, the research for that speech, what I began to see is that policy is a process of creating and managing consensus or agreement. Mm -hmm. I like that. Politics, on the other hand, is the art of creating and managing conflict. And my observation was in this country, and representatives from other countries told me this was the same for them too, policy and politics danced together. Like in this country, it's pretty much two years of policy followed by two years of politics, followed mm -hmm. by two years of policy. Right. Our policy cycle starts at about the time the president has appointed a cabinet. That's when he has an infrastructure for making policy. Mm -hmm. Our political cycle starts at the midterm congressional election. It takes us two years to elect a president. So for two years, we fight. Yeah. Now, there's some good things about that, mm -hmm. because if all we did was sit around and agree with each other, we wouldn't get very far. That's right. If all we did was disagree with each other, we wouldn't get very far. Mm -hmm. So that sort of dance back and forth is important. What I liked about my position in government is that I could work on the consensus part of it. Right. Even when it was a political season, I could work behind the scenes to get agreement and keep things moving. Right. What I didn't think I could do was be involved in the fight all the time. Mm. And that's why I opted not to run for Congress. Do you see the, the, um, the atmosphere the same today as it was back then when, when you were in Washington? It's not. Um, um, I'm, I'm not there as often as I used to be, for sure, and I don't live there anymore. Mm -hmm. But everyone that I talk to says it is um, much more hostile than we could ever have imagined. And some of us were talking to Senator Schweiker mm -hmm. and um, Senator Dole and asking about, you know, asking them why did they think this was the case. And they think it has something to do with the fact that their generation fought in the war together. 
they knew it was about something more than a narrow agenda. It was about freedom, and they felt that. And then also, they lived in Washington. Their families knew each other. Um, and it was a lot harder to just have a fight with somebody if you had dinner with them the night before. Yes. And if your wife knew their wife and if your kids played with their kids. So the nature of the community overall has changed, and that's probably part of what's happening as well. Yeah. Um, I, I want to start talking about your company, your new company. You're very excited about it. I can see it all on your face. <laughs> and you talked in the break about a story, a wonderful story that um, – pertains to Sage Life, and it's called The Blueberry Story, and I'd love to hear it. This will become more clear as we have a chance to talk about Sage Life, but a couple of weeks ago, I was in Penn Station in New York waiting to catch a train to come back here to Philadelphia. A young woman with a two-year-old in a stroller came and sat next to me. She, she was feeding her child blueberries, uh, putting one in the baby's hand, and then the baby would uh, put the blueberry in her mouth. The interaction between the two of them was absolutely beautiful. The language, the smiles, um, all of the little quirky things that the kid did and that the mom did back. Well, as luck would have it, the baby had her hand open, and one of those blueberries rolled off, hit the floor, and bounced a couple of feet, feet away from us. Well, the mom all of a sudden said, I'll get that. And I said, no, I'll get that. She said, no, I'll get that. I just looked at her and I said, look, you're the mom. I said, as far as I'm concerned, for all you do, you're a rock star. I said, the least I can do is get this blueberry. (laughs) So I got up and got the blueberry and threw it in the waste can, which was just another arm's length away. And as I turned around to go back to my seat, I saw her face. And she was choking back tears. And I thought, oh, my, here I am. I wanted to be helpful and here yeah. reduce the stranger <laughs> to tears. What am I going to do to take the edge off of this? So when I sat down, I said, you know, I said I travel a lot. And I watch women struggling with children, and nobody reaches out to help them, and that bothers me. And she said, yeah, like it's supposed to be tough, right? And I told her a story. Um, Judy Woodruff, um, you know, the reporter, um, gave a speech to the American Academy of Pediatrics. This probably has to be 25 years ago now. She and her husband had a child, and she said each one of them traveled alone with that baby. She said, when I travel alone, nobody reaches out to help me. When my husband travels alone, all the women (laughs) reach out to help him. <clears throat> we talked for a few more minutes, and I seized the opportunity to do an on-the-spot bit of marketing research, and I pulled out my iPad, and I showed her what we were going to be doing in the new company. She got it instantly. Yeah. Um, it was about that time that she had to leave to get her train, and so she handed me her business card. She said, I'd like to give you my card. I took a look at her card, and I Googled her, and I looked at her organization. She has a Ph.D., She is the director in a very important organization in Washington, D.C. And she was reduced to tears because somebody helped her out with something so simple. Wow. And so regardless of what I do in the new company directly with parents, I also want to talk to communities about the ways in which we all need to support parents and the very important role that they have 
in even simple ways, mm-hmm. like picking up a blueberry. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, it must have been more than just the kind gesture, but what was going on in her life and the overwhelm that she was experiencing. So that small act of kindness would just kind of, you know. You know, um, I think any mom could understand. I, you can imagine what her life was like that day. She was in New York to visit family or friends. So she got up that morning, got herself and the baby ready, got him into a taxi with that stroller, got out of the taxi and down into that train station. And she had a three-hour ride ahead of her on the train. And then she would do the reverse on the other side. Yeah, uh, That's a lot of being on yeah. um, and being very responsible for a young child alone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that was There was an aha moment that led to the launch of this company. Yeah. What it, that's not the blueberry story. Right. What, what is that moment? It was a quote from Robert Downey Jr. in an article that I read about him. He said that he had a psychiatrist and a sensei and a yoga teacher, but, you know, somewhat defensively, he said, I'm not a Model T. I'm a Ferrari. And it takes more of a pit crew to keep us on the road. (laughs) And at that moment, I thought to myself, Buster, if you're a Ferrari, I am at least a Maserati. (laughs) And, you know, you're right. Who's my pit crew? And so I started making lists for myself of all of the people that it took just to keep me and my household going. And I was shocked when there were 50. Wow. And for a while I thought, am I high maintenance or what? (laughs) And I have a simple life uh, by comparison. I I had a house and there was me, but I don't have a spouse Mm -hmm. and all the, the relationships that come with that. I don't have children, don't have pets. My elderly mother is quite healthy and so she didn't need my help and I'm healthy. So I don't have some extra set of specialist physicians that I need to see. And all I could think of was what is life like for other people who have all of those additional people that they need um, to engage to manage their lives. Right. And that's when I first started working on what has now become um, the, the company I'm launching. Okay. When we come back, we're going to take one last break. When we come back, we're going to learn all about Sage Life and, and how it can help you. We'll be right back. Are you the parent of a daughter in middle school? If so, I must tell you about an upcoming event at Mount St. Joseph Academy. As the parent of an alum, I know firsthand the value of their academic excellence, athletic and arts programs. This private, all-girls Catholic high school in Montgomery County provides the foundation our daughters need to go on to leadership roles at top universities and future careers. I know my daughter did. To register for the open house, go to msjacad.org backslash open house. And be sure to ask about their financial assistance and scholarship programs when you visit msjacad.org backslash open house. Hello. Hi, Kelly. It's Sue. Are you and Joe going to the kids game after school today? No, we are stuck in traffic again on our way to the hospital for Joe's IVIG infusion. As usual, we will be at the hospital all day and won't be home in time. This is really becoming a problem with our work and family commitments. Hey, my friend's son receives his infusions at home with Walgreens. You know they are not just a retail pharmacy. Walgreens has a national home infusion program. He used to miss school, but now the Walgreens nurses see him at home after school. Wow, infusions in the comfort of our own home? Yes, 
Walgreens expert infusion nurses and pharmacists are available 24-7 to provide safe, one-on-one -on -one clinical support around your schedule. Talk to your doctor and call Walgreens Infusion Services at 877-974-4844 or go to womentowatch.net for complete details. We will, if we ever get out of this traffic, hearty har har. We can't wait to have these infusions at home with Walgreens. Thanks. Be well. Are you looking for assistance with your IT demands? Would you like to know that the people you hire have your best interest at heart? InSource is one of the region's most distinguished and fastest growing technology firms in the Philadelphia area. Their only concern is to deliver business long-term success to avoid reacting to daily crisis. Recognized as a top employer of IT consultants, they thrive on helping their clients exceed expectations. InSource delivers reliable and effective solutions to the technology needs of both small and large businesses as well as nonprofits and does so with the goals of your business in mind. With over a decade of recognized success, InSource provides its clients with both IT staffing needs as well as putting highly qualified project teams together. InSource is also a partner of ServiceNow, the fastest growing software company in the country. Contact InSource today at 610-592-0800 or visit their website at insourcenow.com to find the quality help you need. Have you ever wondered about the magic of Paris? Traveled there before? You haven't experienced Paris until you've traveled with us. I'm Chloe Johnson, the owner of CJ Tours. I became hooked on the mystique of all things Parisian after just one visit to the City of Light. CJ Tours, a travel, fashion, and product company, provides an experience unlike any other when it comes to exploring the hidden gems of Paris. We connect you with boutiques off the beaten path. We provide the opportunity to go behind the scenes with some of the most celebrated designers Paris has to offer. You can even purchase one-of-a-kind French pieces as mementos of your trip or ask us to source that special piece just for you. CJ Tours and our unique products are designed to provide that Parisian je ne sais quoi and allow you to experience Paris like never before. To learn more, contact me at Chloe Johnston at cjshoppingtours.com or simply visit chloejohnston.com for more information. When you are shopping, do you chuckle at the one-size-fits-all tags? Well, wealth management should not take a one-size-fits-all approach either. Companies offer different products and services for women, and they should. All women are different. Your plan should be as unique and personal as you are. So why are you still following your one-size-fits-all financial advisor? Financial advisor Liz Barker of RBC Wealth Management understands this. Her area of expertise is women in transition and being retirement ready. Call Liz Barker, financial advisor at RBC Wealth Management at 484-530-2806. Again, that number is 484-530-2806 or visit her online at www.lizbarker.com to schedule your complimentary custom wealth management plan today. RBC Wealth Management, a division of RBC Capital Markets, LLC, member NYSE, FINRA, SIPC. Welcome back, everyone, to Women to Watch. This week, I'm in the studio with Glenna Crooks, and uh, Glenna Crooks is from Philadelphia, and she is founder of a new tech company called Sage Life. And uh, I'm going to give Glenna a few minutes to tell the audience exactly what that is. All right. Sage, My, Sage, Sage Life has created a tool, which we call Sage My Life. And that tool is in the cloud, 
it's it's a way to go on our platform and very very quickly identify everyone that is in your own personal unique network the people who are closest into you who you work with engage with in order to have the sort of life that you want mm-hmm. in the earliest generations of this it was a tool just for women Oh, okay. Yeah. And it was, I had so many friends coming to me and telling me about the problems they have and the overload they felt. Mm-hmm. And so the first several generations of this, I was developing tools to make it easy for them to decide and determine who those people were and then better ways to display that for them because the visual is very powerful. A list is not a management tool. We can all have lists, but you can't manage off a list, uh, especially if your lives are complex. It was during that time that I learned how unconscious we are about who's in our life. One woman, for example, didn't even realize she was managing 47 people for one of her children. She had two children. They both had special needs. And this particular one who had Asperger's, 47 people. Mm. Using the tools and techniques then that uh, we were building, she was able to get that number down to eight to get him into a special school. It has transformed the entire family. She was able actually then afterwards to develop and launch her own app, which is now in the Apple Store. It's called Five Minutes of Fun. And it's uh, a tool to help um, children with special needs and their teachers and their families to manage that better and more simply. Uh, Stunning, stunning piece of work. The, uh, after a while, as I talked with men about it, every man said they wanted it too. And it was really kind of interesting because if I listened long enough, men went through four stages. The first thing they said, somewhat defensively, when they heard it was just for women, is, wait a minute, I want that. I need to be organized, better organized. Yeah, and the second thing they said is, I want my wife to have that. Mm -hmm. Then if they had a daughter who was at least 15, they said, I want my daughter to have that because she is following in her mother's footsteps. And she's making all those same mistakes. She should be focusing on her life, not everybody else's. And then finally, and I just so wish that their wives could see this, the men get this kind of like faraway look in their eye. And they say, you know, if my wife had this, we could have more fun. <laughs> and you sort of almost get this sort of like return to romance. You know, like, remember when it was just us? Before Simpler. all these people came flooding into our lives. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. So um, at that stage, I transitioned to realizing that it, I really had to offer this to both men and women yeah. and make it relevant to both men and uh, women's life. Yeah. Um, for for listeners who are not tech savvy, you mm-hmm. know, there are still some people out there that, you know, um, are afraid of, of programs and computers and, and whatnot. Um, in a one-liner say what it is, what it would do for um, a consumer if, if they were to purchase this? It would help them to really identify the people in their lives that they are relating to for either their personal or their professional lives. And let me say one more thing about that. All of the time management and the productivity systems that we have are based on tasks, Make a list of the tasks. Set your priorities. In Covey's terms, decide what the mission of your life is and then do those things. Now, those things are good and I use them too. But what that ignores is that associated with every task is a person. Mm. And how it goes with that person will make it or break it for you. Now, sometimes that person is just yourself. 
I don't know about a lot of people, but there are days I can't manage me and a small dog. Uh, you know, you know, I'm the one who's got to get to the gym in the morning. Yeah. And there are a lot of mornings I find reasons not to do that. Right. So it's it, that's what I become intrigued by is the people in our lives and are they really supporting us? And that's really what a network is all about. This identifies your network. And what we know increasingly from the research that's done is that your network is absolutely essential to your life and to your health. And Mm -hmm. in fact, literally to your life. Uh, People who are in good, strong, supportive networks are healthier and they live longer. Right. Um, uh, It is hard to be more successful than the average of your five best friends. There is a three-degree network influence. So, for example, if you have a friend who has another friend that you don't even know, and that person has another friend that your friend doesn't even know, and that person out there on the edge of that starts gaining weight, the next person will, your friend will, and you will. Obesity is, in fact, contagious. So is success. So when I learned this information, I all of a sudden realized that the attempt of a parent to get their child in a good school was, in fact, exactly the right thing to do. You, We think about this when our kids are teenagers. We want them running in a good crowd. Mm-hmm. We don't tend to think about this when our children are young, and we don't tend to think about this for us as adults. But the reality is, uh, if you want to get better at something, find somebody who is better at it than you are and friend up. When I was playing tennis, my game was always better when I played with a better player. Mm -hmm. When I go into a room full of smart people, wow, I learn a lot and I get smarter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about how you came up with the name Sage My Life. I'm not quite sure how that happened. (laughs) Except that sometimes I think this is the sum total of everything I've ever learned. And ever since I've been five years old, people have been telling me I'm wise. And the name Sage has multiple meanings. Uh, Not only is it about uh, being wise, but if you know some of the Native American traditions, it's about cleansing. And a lot of people who go through this process and see the maps uh, and the visual displays that we produce say it shows them what they need to clean out of their lives. That's my favorite part about what you're doing is the fact that it's going to simplify people's yeah. lives. You know, when you organize um, and you and you talk about the relationships and the people, um, it's not just mm-hmm. about kind of seeing where they all fit, but eliminating some that maybe aren't adding to your life in a positive way. Yes, or plugging holes. Uh, uh, one woman who did her map recently uh, told me that she, until she did her map, she did not realize that she was lacking a spiritual element in her life. And Gosh, she didn't know that didn't, until she looked at the visual of her map. Didn't know it. Wow. Didn't know it. Um, you know, one woman, when she, the first reaction when she saw her map was to say, who will come to my funeral? I have no friends. Wow. Uh, another woman realized that the sort of rejuvenating things that she did, she wasn't doing. Every time there was a crisis, she's the one that fell off her own list. Mm-hmm. And that she really did need to get into the sort of creative classes that she wanted to take at the local community college or the Y or something. And um, so getting back into that, or for her, it was also getting back into regular massages, helped to keep her going, but didn't realize that she wasn't wasn't doing that. Yeah. 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 Sometimes the visual is very, very 
powerful and mm-hmm. just kind of putting it all into perspective for you yeah. in a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to know, wh- why is it so important to you to do this? Why was it important to you to launch this company? What drives you every day? I've been organizing chaos and solving complex problems for a long time. And I think that this is the place where I feel I could make the next best contribution. Um, we talked a little bit about government. Mm-hmm. And as much as I would like to see the processes in government improved, I know the government can't solve all the problems. And so my work in the private sector in healthcare or in consulting with government was important to me because I felt I could make a contribution there. Mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of people now in healthcare who can make that contribution. So I don't think I necessarily need to stay there. But with regard to the the one that started with Robert Downey Jr., uh, I think I have something that people, when they see it, are going to say, yeah, you're right. But nobody's quite articulated that before. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think I have the great opportunity and the great fun to be the one to go out and talk about this. Yeah, yeah. I think that's very key. Often we are um, w- desiring something. We feel that something's off kilter, off balance, and we don't know how to articulate mm-hmm. it. And then someone comes up and says, this is what you need to do. This is going to help you have more clarity. Or just try this. I mean, the, the woman from the Blueberry Story, when she saw the map, um, she got it instantly. And she said, you know, People in my generation, she said, pointing to the part of the map where the family network is, Mm -hmm. she said, people in my generation, we don't live near our families. Right. So we have to activate other networks. And she pointed to the one that was the social network. She said, that's where we're going to get our our support. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or, for example, uh, earlier this week, uh, I had a meeting with um, a priest from a Russian Orthodox church. I'd been meeting with clergy from all the spiritual traditions because I really want to understand what is it that each of the spiritual traditions are doing to support people. Mm And so he told me about how the Russian ethnic community comes together with the spiritual community to create the way that they provide support. And, you know, those insights that he gave me in the work that I do in the future are going to help point people in those directions, Uh, help churches think about ways they can support families, but help families realize that there can be a source of support there, uh, as well as in other ones of the networks that they and their children are involved in, and to turn there for help. Yeah. I think it's important to point out, you mentioned that this program is going to have algorithms. Mm -hmm. So not only are you going to be able to kind of see your life um, before you on a map, but it, you know, once you plug your own information in, it will um, give you suggestions or point out things that maybe are missing. Talk about how that works. When we launch, we won't have all of those um, set up. That's a highly interactive program, which we'll have in place by later next year. Okay. Uh, but what we're doing is keying off of what are essential things that people really need to have. People, you know, adults really need to have a will. If you're a parent, you need to have custodial arrangements in the event something happens to you, who will care for your children. Uh, we all get so busy every day. Um, what this tool does is, and our algorithms is put a little bit of distance between your nose and your grindstone. Mm-hmm. So we've done a little bit of that thinking for you right. so that you can rearrange um, your to-do list to get to some important things like uh, will be in the algorithms. Yeah, that's terrific. Um, that's 
that's all the time we have today. Um, I'd love uh, for the audience to be able to get in touch with you should they have questions about the new company or when they'll actually be able to access it. So what's the uh, best contact information for you? My first name, Glenna, G-L-E-N-N-A, at, one word, sagemylife.com. S-A-G-E-M-Y-L-I-F-E.com. That's right. Terrific. Thank you so much for joining me today, Glenn. I really enjoyed it. Great stories, and your life story is, is, is really inspirational to me. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch. And if you're listening and you'd like some information about our show, please feel free to reach out to me at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. Have a great week, everyone. 